If you would, take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, We're going to go all the way through uh, the first few verses of chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 21 uh, and then 22. Uh, To begin our time, I'm actually going to read the first two verses of chapter 22. We continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, This is kind of what we do around here. We take a book of the Bible and we work verse by verse, chapter by chapter through that book. We want to understand this book of the Bible in light of the whole Bible. The Bible is a story about Jesus Christ. It's a story about God's King who is Jesus. And every verse in the Bible points us to Jesus. Uh, And we want to spend our lives as Christians... Uh, studying and learning every one of those verses that points to Jesus. They're all important. They're all God-breathed. They're all given to us so that we would love and serve and adore Jesus more. And as a church, we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 21 through 22 today. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, verse 1 of chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his fathers heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Oh, God, we thank you for this story that you give us. God, we thank you for your glorious word that teaches us more and more about Jesus Christ. And and that's what we pray today as a church. We would know Jesus more. We would know him better. We would understand his glory, his character, what he requires of us, what he calls us to. You would make us by the power of your spirit, according to your word, more like Jesus today. That is our prayer. And God, I pray in these moments, God, we would tune our hearts to your word. We would zero in. We would focus. There are plenty of things during this time that could distract us, but we need Jesus and we need to know Jesus And God, I pray that we would zero in to know him during this time. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. That's just stupid. I was recounting to my mother the events and activities of a mission trip that I had just gotten back from. This was many years ago. uh, And I'd spent a week with a group from our church Uh, camping in the Andes Mountains. We had to hike into this remote village. You couldn't take cars all the way in. And so we had gotten um, these vans to drop us off and we hiked in and we camped out for seven days in this remote village in the Andes Mountains among a people who did not know Jesus. And I was recounting all of the the week's uh, events to my mom and uh, she was happy to hear them. We were having dinner with her and Her friend who was there, who was a, he he said he was an atheist, and he said he didn't believe in the gospel, he didn't believe in Jesus, and he was a self-proclaimed unbeliever. Just in the middle of my stories, very rudely, he just interrupted me, and he said, that's stupid. He said, why would you do that? 
Why, why, would you, why would you go through all of that just to get these people to believe what you believe? Why would you spend the money? Why would you, uh, why would you take the time? And don't you know those people, they have diseases. You could have gotten really, really sick and, and, and you could have gotten hurt. And, and why would you do that just to get these people out in the middle of nowhere to believe like you believe? And we sort of went back and forth because as much of, as he, is, he was a jerk, I'm a jerk at times, and, and I can be a jerk, and I, like, I really, really like to argue. Uh, you can ask my wife that. And so he picked an argument with me. And this was theology, and this was Bible, and this was missions, and this is what I'm an expert in. And so I, we just went back and forth at the table arguing for some time. And you know what? He never agreed with me. I think the last sentence of the conversation was, again, yeah, that sounds stupid to me. I never got anywhere with him. And, and, and as irritated as I was, and still am as I'm thinking about that conversation, those conversations are always good for me. Because they remind me how stupid these things really are sometimes. How foolish the world sees what we do. Why would you do that? that? That makes no sense to me. Why would you spend time? Why would you spend money? Why would you give yourself over to those things? So much of what we believe and embrace and, and, and do is oxymoronic to the world. It's just a whole nother universe. It, it's a whole nother way of thinking that does not make sense. And we're beginning to see that, especially in these two chapters, with David. It makes no sense that the anointed king of Israel, the one who has been given the power of the Spirit, is running like a fugitive. As you read the story, you're, you're supposed to think back just a, a few chapters ago and say, well, wasn't he given the anointing of God? Wasn't he given the Spirit of God? Hasn't God said David is God's king? And we're to ask the question, why is he running away? Why is he scared of Saul? Even, even Saul's son, Jonathan, is his best friend who has surrendered his loyalty to David, said, you're my king. And so why, all of a sudden, do we find David out in the middle of nowhere, running like a fugitive from a man named Saul who is wicked, who is sinful? I mean, David is the one who killed Goliath. No one in Israel could do that. Everyone else was cowering in fear. And he stepped forward and he killed the giant. And since that moment, he has been bloodthirsty for the glory of God. He has wiped out Philistine armies. He is wiping out the enemies of God. And so now, why all of a sudden is he out in the middle of nowhere, cowering in fear? It just sounds stupid. It doesn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense to the priest in Nob. Notice verse 1 of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob. Now, this would have been a city of priests. And several chapters ago, we remember that the Ark of the Covenant was in chaos and turmoil. And it seems as though the people have just taken all of the relics of worship to this city. 
and you have priests who live in this city who are guarding over all of their worship items. The sanctuary seems to be there in some pieces at this time. And this is where David goes. He goes to the city of priests. About 85 priests would have been in this city. And he meets Ahimelech. And this would have been the one who is in charge of Israel's worship. And he comes to David, and notice verse 1, he is trembling. Word has reached the city. Saul has lost his mind. Saul, who, who the Spirit of God has left, is trying to kill David. And, and there, is this, there is this turmoil between Saul and David, and the, the priests hear about it. And all of a sudden, David shows up at the door. What are you doing here? You are the giant slayer. And, and, and there's chaos in the land and he's confused and he's trembling. And he asks the question, why are you alone? It makes no sense. You are the leader of God's armies. What are you doing here with no one? And notice what David said to the priest. The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter of which I send you and with which you have been charged. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now we read that and we go, hold on, that doesn't make sense. The king is trying to kill David. Why is David talking about being on a mission from Saul? Why is he doing that? Because he's lying. He's lying. Now a lot of commentators get this point and they try to say, well, he's on a mission from God who is king. No, David is scared. And David lies to the priest and, and it makes no sense. Why is he lying? You can't spiritualize it. And this is why when you read the Bible, you, you can't read the Bible in this be like our heroes. Because our heroes are full of flaws. And our heroes lie. The Bible's not about David. And at this point, he's in a, he's in a situation where he has to lie. And he lies to the priest. And it makes no sense. And it's foolish. And, and it even seems silly at this point. In verse 3, Now then, what do you have on hand? He's saying to the priest, Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common or profane bread, normal bread on hand. But there is holy bread. Now, this would have been bread that was used inside the temple, inside the tabernacle. It was actually in the Holy of Holies. And only the priest could partake of this bread. And he would do it during sacrifices. And it was to symbolize as the priest took part in this bread that he had communion with God. In the presence of God. Only the priest was to have this bread. And the priest says, I've got some holy bread, as if it's no big deal. But notice the requirement. If the young men with you have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when we go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him holy bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, the holy bread partaken in the presence of God, which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread, by new bread on the day it is taken away. And so the priest says, before I give you this bread, I want to make sure your men are holy. And the description there is of men who are prepared for holy war. 
You see, in Israel, when men would go out to battle, they would prepare themselves for holy war. It was to be an act of worship as they killed God's enemies. They were to be set apart as vessels, warriors, ready for battle to purge the land of the enemies of God. And the priest says, I will give you this bread if your men are set apart for this. And David says, they always are. They're always set apart. Again, we find David just sort of exaggerating and making up what we would say is a lie. It's a flat-out lie. He says they're set apart for this mission from the king. And we read this and we see the priest handing over the holy bread. And we read, okay, what's going to happen now is God is going to strike David down. He has lied. He, he, he's making up this story. No one is to have this bread but David. What's going to happen next is he's going to be wiped out there in the presence of this priest. And that's not what happens. It it, it doesn't make sense to us. It goes against all of our inclinations as we read the scripture and we think about the holiness of God. And so as we step back, we're to ask the question, what is God teaching us in this moment? As David, a fugitive on the run, He is looking for provision. What is God teaching us here as he takes the holy bread of God in his hand? We're to be reminded in this scene that God is taking care of his king no matter what. God has graciously and mercifully set David aside. And he's still providing for him in exile. He's still taking care of him as he is running from Saul. And even as the the holy bread is handed to him, there is to be a rebuke of David. God's going to take care of you. You don't have to lie. God's going to take care of you, David. God takes care of all of his people, all of his sons. He took care of Israel in the wilderness. He he takes care of Jesus in the wilderness. He takes care of his king. And we're to learn that lesson as we read this story. But there's also a greater point that Jesus teaches us about. Do you remember the story when the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath? And and the Pharisees, they rush up to Jesus and they're like, we caught you. You're breaking the Sabbath. Your disciples are out here picking grain on the Sabbath. We caught you. How can they do that? You are breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to the Sabbath is, oh, oh, do you remember when David was running from Saul and he went to the priest and the priest gave David holy bread? There is something more important than the Sabbath. There is something more important than the bread. And it is God's king. And Jesus would tell the the Pharisees, I'm more important than the Sabbath. The Sabbath points to me. And you need me more than you need the Sabbath. And here what God is telling the people of Israel, this is the king you need. And there is something more important than the bread right in front of you. And it's the king. David, who is God's holy king, transcends the holy bread here. Just as Jesus transcends the Sabbath, Jesus transcends the bread. Jesus would say, you need more than holy bread. You need bread from heaven. And bread from heaven is standing before you. Quit talking about the Sabbath. Quit talking about all of that. You need me and you're missing me because you think you need bread more. 
And that's where all of our anxieties come from. As we see God taking care of his king here in the wilderness, we are to be reminded that our greatest anxieties, our greatest, our greatest worries, they, they rack us with fear and angst when we begin to think that we need something more than we need Jesus, that we need bread more than we need a king. Some of you are worried about money. Because you have made money king and not Jesus. There are some of us here today and we are praying that God would provide for us a spouse. We're praying that God would provide for us a better job opportunity. And we have begun to look at bread. We have begun to look at money. We have begun to look at provision. And we said that's the point. And that's not the point of this story. The king is the point of this story. And you need Jesus more than you need bread. There are men here today and our whole identity is wrapped up in providing for others. Men, just stop and think about your life for a moment. The majority of us here today, we would say we're not selfish. We're not, we're not earning this paycheck to just do what we want. Some of us are, but the majority of us are. We're going out and we're making a living so we can pay bills. So we, we can, so our kids can do things they need to do and they want to do. So we can put food on the table. And, and, and we have, our whole identity is wrapped up in providing for others. And, and it's causing great angst in your life today, men. Because you have forgot the words of Jesus. Man shall not live on bread alone. But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What you need more than anything today is for God to fill, fulfill his purposes in a king. And he has done so in Jesus Christ who has died for your sin, who has been raised from the dead. And the point of this whole episode here is if God's going to take care of his king, if he's going to give him bread, he, he's going to take care of you. And if God in Jesus Christ has taken care of your sin and he's taken care of your death, he's going to take care of bread. He's going to provide for you. If God would provide for you more than you need, he's going to take care of what you need. He's going to take care of you. And the story continues. Then David, okay, I've got bread. Wasn't expecting that. So now let me ask for something more. David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? Okay, I have food. Now I need a weapon. For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Again, it's another lie. The reason he doesn't have a sword or spear is because he got out of town really quick. Notice the text continues. And the priest said, I've got a sword, one that you know very well. The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. I know. I've held it in my hand. I sawed the giant's neck bone off. Now some of you said, hey, you say that every week. You talk about sawing Goliath's neck. I just like talking about it. I just think it's really cool that he took that sword and sawed off the giant's neck, okay? David says, I know. I felt it in my hand. 
I, I, I know what that is like. And, and here the priest goes back and he goes behind the veil, back into a place where the, the priest garments were, back into the, pre, back into the place where David had left all of Goliath's army battle. And he had presented the sword of Goliath after he killed him there as, a, as an item of worship to the Lord. And here he brings out the sword and he hands it to David. And as he's standing there with holy bread, God's going to provide for you, David. Now he's standing there with a holy sword that has taken down the enemy of God. And we see a picture of a king who can take the enemy's weapon and use it against the enemy. That's exactly what he did to Goliath. He took Goliath's own weapon and killed him with it. And we see a picture again of what a king from God looks like. A king that God will provide for. A king that God will give the weapon of the enemy to so that he can use it for his own benefit. The, the, the worst enemy in this world is sin and death. And that weapon has been given over to Jesus to use for our good. That's the picture we're to see as David stands there with this weapon, the enemy's weapon. It, 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 it is to remind us of Jesus who has taken the weapon of death and defeated your greatest enemy. Your greatest enemy today is your sin. That's your greatest enemy. As we read the Bible, as we sing songs about our enemies, we're to always be mindful that I am the one who has caused myself the most pain. Now, some of us here today, we would look at our family and we'd say, no, that person caused me more pain than anybody else. Some of us here today would look at friends and say, no, they have caused me more pain than anybody else. You don't know the way they betrayed me. You don't know the way they've abused me. And that may be true. And that may be extremely painful for you. But it is your sin that has separated you from God. When you have chosen to, to serve yourself and to make yourself center of the universe, what you have done is you have pushed God away. And in Genesis 3, we see the curse of death comes into the world. And because we have rebelled against God, we all deserve to die. We deserve to die separated from God. And that is the enemy's greatest weapon. And you know what Jesus has done? He has taken death and defeated your sin. He has taken the enemy's greatest weapon, death, and defeated your sin. He, he has taken death to defeat your worst problem. And he's the only one who has the power and right to do it. As David stands there with that sword, it's kind of like Excalibur. You're the only one who can use this sword, David. Nobody else wants to touch it. It's been set apart as a holy sword that kills the enemies of God. And you're the only man who can wield it. Jesus is the only man who can wield death because he's sinless and he doesn't deserve to die. So he can die for your sin to defeat your enemies. And then he can stand before you today and say, despite your sin, if you believe in me, you will never see death. You will never see the enemy's weapon, death, if you believe in me. You won't see it. And that, again, is something in the Bible that doesn't make a lot of sense. Let's just be honest. You see death every day. Some of us see it up close and personal. We've held the hand of loved ones 
as they breathe their last breath, bodies wracked with disease and death. Some of us have been in those rooms where we've smelled death. We've seen it. And yet Jesus says, you won't see it. We see it. And it sounds foolish. It sounds crazy to believe such a promise. And yet Jesus' point is the one who has put sin and death under his feet. As you live in a world and your body's going to wither, the synapses in your brain are going to get slower and slower and slower. And there is a day that that, that monitor is going to flatline and the beep will continue. And in that moment, as you look around and, and, and you see the effects of death, when you close your eyes, there will be a moment where you open them and you won't see eternal death in hell you, would, you will see Jesus Christ face to face. He can make that promise to you today. He has the right to do it because he has wielded the enemy's weapon to defeat your greatest enemy, your sin. And you will live in his presence forever and ever. And then he calls us to do the same thing, to leverage death against the enemy. You know, some of the greatest warriors in the faith that I know, they're not my favorite preachers. They're not even pastors and mentors in my life who have invested in me. Some of the greatest warriors in the faith that I know, that, that I count it a privilege to, to have even been their friend, are those who have died well, who have died clinging to Jesus, who, who to the very end as their bodies racked with pain and agony numb to what's going on around them would say Jesus is better. Jesus is better than death. How can you say that? How can you say that? If the gospel's true, it may sound foolish, but if the gospel's true, you have the power to say it. You have the power to use the enemy's weapon against him. And notice the foolishness only continues here. In verse 10, we see that David arises and he goes that day from Saul. And he ends up before Achish, the king of Gath. Now remember Gath, that is Goliath's hometown. And we're thinking, why are you going to Goliath's hometown? And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another? You know, you've heard those songs of the Israelites, the, those pop songs about this little shepherd boy who kills all the Philistines, who kills all the giants. Isn't this him? Isn't this Saul's little boy? You know, Saul struck down his thousands, but David is 10,000. Well, we've heard about you. And David hears these words over and over. In verse 12, he takes them to heart and he gets fearful in Gath. And so he changes his behavior, verse 13, and he pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the door of the gate and he let spit run down his beard. What, 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 what does David do? Anointed king of God, God's ruler. He begins to act like a fool. He begins to act like a madman. And it was taboo here to have anything to do with a madman. They were cursed by demons. They were cursed by the gods. And David begins to impersonate a bad man or a madman. And then verse 14, Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad? Why have you brought him to me? Like he's something. He's an idiot. He's a moron. Verse 15, do I lack madmen 
There are madmen everywhere. People are crazy. Why did you bring this crazy man in here like he's some benefit to me? Notice that this fellow to behave like a madman in my presence, that is an insult. Shall this fe fellow come into my house and curse us? Get him out of here. And we see very vividly, this is the point of the chapter, the kingdom of God is disguised in foolishness. It's the same thing we see with Jesus. When he, when he comes on the scene, he is God's righteous, holy king. And how does he come into enemy territory? How does he come into the cities of Gath, the cities of this world? He comes as a poor carpenter's son. He's labeled a madman. His own family. There were times when Jesus would be teaching and his own family would look at him and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You are the son of God. You are God's king. Yeah, right. That, that's crazy. The priest said that of Jesus that he was filled with a demon. We, we've all been in those cities. We've all been in those situations where we're walking through and there is the homeless guy who is there who, who, is, who is just speaking out of his mind. And, and he's talking crazy. I've been in those situations where I've had homeless people tell me that they are Jesus. We, and if Jesus were here, many of us would say, yeah, he's just another one of those homeless guys. That's the way he comes into the world. The kingdom is disguised in foolishness. No one calls themselves the son of God. As C.S. Lewis would say, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He really is who he says he is, or he's a liar, or he was just crazy. Those are your only options when it comes to Jesus who is disguised as a fool. And then Jesus does the most foolish thing he could ever do. He doesn't march to Gath, but he marches to Golgotha. And he gives up on a cross. That's foolish. That's stupidity. Why would you do that? Why would you take the appearance of a crucified Messiah? That's an oxymoron. That's like a godly pedophile. Those things do not go together. They do not make sense. That is like a losing champion. How, why, that's foolish. That doesn't make any sense. And yet he becomes the fool so we can escape. Notice verse 1 of chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now this would have been, don't think of like a little hole in the wall cave. This would have been a cave where fugitives went to for escape. It would have been like a fortress where rogue armies would have huddled up for battle. It was on the outskirts, off in the hill country. And when his brothers and, and all his father's house heard of it, they went there to him. Now, isn't it interesting that David didn't go back to Jesse's house? He didn't go back to his dad. He didn't, he didn't go to the throne either. He didn't, he didn't go to the center of power. He goes out of town, and it's his family that's coming out to him. His family, out of concern and fear, are saying, we don't have a home anymore with Saul. Saul's now after our life. We have nothing with the kingdom of Saul, but we have everything with the king who is our brother on the outskirts of the city. In verse 2, notice who comes to David. Everyone who is in distress. Now that word means those who are in pain and agony. They, they felt the brunt of sickness, disease, loss. They're hurting. The people of Israel who are hurting, they hear God's anointed king is in a cave outside the city 
And that's where we're going. We're going to go to him. And notice everyone who was in debt. Now the word here means poverty. They didn't have anything to their name. They are destitute. They are homeless. They don't have a home. So they go out to King David. And everyone who was bitter in soul. This just means sadness of the soul. They have no hope. They are discontent. These are the kind of folks that are gathering to David on the outskirts of the city. And notice, he became commander over them. This ragtag group of exile refugees is beginning to form into a kingdom out in the middle of nowhere. Out in a cave outside the city. That's where the kingdom begins to to form on the outskirts of the city. And it's a picture of how the kingdom moves in the world. We don't always see it. So often it's hidden. Think about when John the Baptist began to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Where was he? He was down by the river. He wasn't in the middle of the city. And what was he telling the religious? If you want to come into the kingdom, you come out of the city. You come away from your religious centers. You come away from your seats of power. You come out here and you humiliate yourself and you say you have nothing. You have nothing but the kingdom. And you are baptized into the kingdom. That's how John the Baptist preached the kingdom. Come on out away from power and come to the kingdom. That's what David's family is saying here. We have nothing. Even though Jesse could say, my boy is God's king. I saw it. That, that prophet came out and anointed him. He, I don't have anything to fear. I'm going to stay at home with my sheep. No, he goes out to the city because his hope is outside the city and the king who's outside the city. It's what we see with Jesus. Who flocks to Jesus? When you, when you read your Bible and the Gospels, notice the type of people who are drawn to Jesus. The poor the outcast, the sick, the lame, those even possessed by demons, and who is repelled from Jesus? Those who have power, those who consider themselves very religious. And, and think about that even in our own context. Who, who, are, who should be drawn to Jesus? Those who can say very clearly, I have nothing but Jesus is all I need. Those who can say... I can't claim some title, some some power to myself. I can't claim some righteousness to myself. I have nothing. I'm destitute. I'm poor. I've been hurt. I've been sad. The king outside the city is my only hope. I need him. And if you can't say that you need Jesus, you've never believed in Jesus. If, If you've never come to the point where you've said, I have nothing in and of myself. No power, no name. I I have no righteousness in and of myself. I have nothing. Then you've never really understood your need for Jesus. You've never really believed in Jesus. Notice the type of people who go out to, to be with Jesus. We see those who are distressed. I, I wonder in this world if you have ever felt distressed, pain, agony, just from being, living here, you felt the pain of this world. Sooner or later, you will. 
You will feel pain in this world. You will feel agony in this world. A lot of times we try to convince ourselves that I can just wake up day after day after day and it's never going to hit. The bad stuff's never going to come to me. There are others in this room who would tell you, just hold on. Because it's coming. And when it comes, the point is, this world isn't your home. This kingdom isn't your home. This isn't the kingdom you will live in forever. And, And if you would come outside of the city to a place where something worse than your worst than your worst moments has happened, oh, you'll find a king. But you know where you'll find him? Outside the city? Stripped naked hanging on two pieces of wood like an abused dog, crying out. Whatever distress you have felt, bring it to Golgotha and see something worse. And and you trade your distress for his distress and you get the kingdom. Your king has said, come on outside of the city to a first century landfill and you will find the kingdom there. That's where they're finding the kingdom here in David. At some point in this world, you will be forced to fill your emptiness. There are folks all across this room. Some of us have a lot in our bank account today, and some of us have very little. Some of us know very well that anxiety of, if I purchase this, I will not be able to pay that bill. If I do this, their numbers, it's not going to work out for me. And you felt that angst in your gut. There's others in us that go, what are you talking about? What, what are you talking about? But the truth is, no matter what side you're on there, sooner or later, you're going to feel your emptiness. And if you've never felt your emptiness when it comes to the holiness before God and saying, I am totally empty, then you don't know what it's like to come out to the kingdom. You you don't know what it's like to meet Jesus. We are to trade our poverty for the poverty of the cross. Where Jesus emptied himself of all but love. He became poor so that we might become rich. And we are to fill our need for him. And we are to say, I have nothing to pay for this kingdom. And anybody here today who comes to Jesus and says, I have something to get in. You can't get in. What you bring to get into the kingdom is nothing. That's how you pay for the kingdom. With nothing but his blood and his righteousness. There's days in this world where you're going to be forced to feel your hopelessness. I found it interesting this week that the last word here for bitter in soul, it can just be translated sadness. People who were sad went out to be with uh, David. Sad, depressed, They lived in darkness, and they go out to the dark cave to be with David. Sooner or later, you're going to feel the sadness and darkness of this world. And in that moment, you're going to be forced to say, I have no hope but Jesus. I have to take my sadness to the saddest place ever, the cross. You know, that wasn't the end of the story. Because just like we, we take our sadness to the cave. We we, we take our sadness to the cross. The the darkest place ever 
Imagine the cave where Jesus was laid. And, and you have the body of the sinless Son of God laying out in a cave in the middle of nowhere. There could be a moment no more hopeless than that. God lost, so it seemed. As the body of the Son of God lay in a tomb and, and began, to, began to stiffen up, began to get cold and hard. And we would, if we could have gone into that cave, that tomb, we would have said, this is the saddest moment in human history. And then three days later, three days later, I always try to just imagine what it was like. What, what happened first? Did, did the spirit empower the brain to start working first? Did, did Jesus' eyes flicker first under the grave cloths? Did, did his heart just thump and it was so quiet in there you, you would have heard it if you were in there? What would it have been like as his, as his fingers began to twitch, as he, as he just reached up and he pulled that hood off of his head and he, he rolled around on the concrete block and his, his feet touched the, the cold floor? What was that like? What was that like out in the cave in the middle of nowhere? outside the city. What was that like? I don't know what it was like. But I know in that moment, all of my sadness came untrue. Every sad moment in my life was reversed in the saddest moment in human history as it was reversed. And the king began to breathe in the tomb outside of the city. And he calls you to come on out today. Bring your sadness to the tomb. Believe the gospel and have it come untrue. Yeah, you're going to suffer and you're going to feel pain the rest, of, the rest of this life. That's true. But you know there's a day where, where the, not just the stone's going to be rolled away, but the sky is going to be ripped wide open and there is Jesus. And it won't be a cave we live in. It will be a new city that will come down and we will live with him forever and every sad moment you experience now will come untrue. Now some of you here today go, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's so stupid. Why do you believe that? It, it, it's in this book that's written by men and, and, and it doesn't make any sense. You just, you, it's like a crutch to make you feel better. It just sounds so stupid. It may, be, it may sound stupid, but it's your only hope. And I want to call you to come be a fool as well.